Our scripture reading tonight comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have had received it back to back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. I'm an old enough person to have changed my interpretation of a text a number of times. I keep files on texts that I have taught. I used to be a Bible teacher in a real college before I started teaching at the Oregon Extension decades ago. I have notes on texts I have lectured on 30 years apart. Kind of sobering to see how subversive of my readings a narrative can be given enough time. Reminds me of two toys I had when I was a kid. One was a jack-in-a-box. I have no idea if they're still making these things anymore. It had a handle on the side of it that when cranked would play Pop Goes the Weasel. You could tell by the feel of the handle when the box was going to pop open. I loved that toy. Never seemed to tire of cranking the handle. I would crank more slowly as the box got near the pop, anxious about the explosion, but also excited to have it happen. I want to suggest that the parables of Jesus are a lot like that toy. You crank the handle, and you might get popped. The other toy I had was a tank made of metal with rubber treads. It was a wind-up toy, 
had a key that when you inserted into the side of the tank, and then you could wind up a spring inside. Nothing electronic about it. I told you I was old. (laughs) When you put the tank on the floor, it would slowly move across the floor. It made loud noises and shot sparks from out of its barrel of the cannon, and its turret turned as well. It scared the bejeebers out of me. My parents had to lock the tank in a hall closet because I was so afraid of it. My parents often told told the story of how I would walk by that closet, shrieking and pointing at the door, obviously petrified at the potential emergence of that tank. It seems to me some biblical stories are like that tank, best left in the closet until we are old enough to play with them. I have some Christian friends who want this text in the closet. In the past, I have tried to interpret the parable along the lines that the master only treats the third servant, the one with who received one talent, in a manner that the servant imagined the master to be, namely a harsh dude. The servant just thought God was harsh and so had to live with that image. It took a lot of explaining. I have 19 pages of notes over 30 years old on this interpretation. Obviously, a good question to begin with, is the master harsh or not? If you ask the first two servants, who each made more money with the money they were given, they might say that the master is a good guy. However, if you ask the third servant, he would say the master is harsh. According to the parable, it sure looks as if that servant is treated harshly. If the master is only playing along with the servant's misunderstanding of the master's true nature, why is that not violent? It seems to me that the master, if the third servant had it wrong, could have said, you got me wrong, kid. Let me prove it to you. And then the master could have done something nice for that servant. But instead, the master in the story does treat him harshly. The master in the story does seem to be telling the third servant to get lost. Well, we tend to think of God as someone who seeks lost sheep. So the parable is somewhat of a tank. I think you can see the problem. Recently, I've seen other interpretations claiming the master is not God. Now the tank is becoming more like a -a jack-in-the-box. That idea does sort of jump out at you. How do you read the story as pointing to the conclusion that the master is not God or Jesus? In addition to harshness, note the master is described as if he were an absentee landlord. A largely peasant audience listening to Jesus tell this parable would immediately identify the third servant as the hero of the story. An absentee landlord is not a good model for God. Under this interpretation, Jesus is referring to the well-known abuses of the economic system of first century Judea. We tend to think of God or Jesus as with us, a kind of presence, while the master of this story leaves his money with his servants and disappears for a long time, and then comes back to settle accounts to see 
if you've been naughty or nice. The economic turn that the parable takes under this interpretation was brought home to me by a paraphrase of verse 29 that I read online by Sarah Dylan Breuer. Verse 29 of the parable says, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Sarah paraphrases that verse this way. The rich will get richer, and the poor will get poorer. That rings bells for all of us. A a talent is a fabulous amount of money. One talent is 600 denarii, and a denarius is the daily wage of a worker or a soldier. So the servant with one talent had 17 years of wages, and the servant with five talents had 85 years of wages. So our parable has money as a central player. We say in our culture, follow the money meaning that it will lead back to the head of something nefarious. Here it leads back to the master. So maybe the master is nefarious. Money is somewhat suspect, especially in the Bible. For instance, we read in Exodus 22:25, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be to him as a creditor. And you shall not exact interest from him. So the poor had a right to a loan without interest on demand. So much for capitalism in the Old Testament. In fact, the Hebrew word for interest is neshech, which means bite, as in snake bite. So when the master in the parable tells the third servant that he should have put the money in the bank, And then at the master's coming, the master would have received what was his own with interest. The the master was recommending a course of action that was not kosher, according to the Hebrew Bible. You will no doubt recall a number of passages in the Gospels where we are told that it is hard for a rich person to even enter the kingdom. And yet these slaves are very rich, the two first slaves, and are commended by the master the poorest of the slaves, the one with only one talent, on the other hand, receives a condemnation from the master. You can see how the parables begin to mess with your mind. Indeed, the parable may be described as a master-slave narrative, where we might be tempted to think of the master as a good slave owner. But upon further reflection, we realize the institution of slavery is not a good one. And there seems to be something fishy going on with anyone who would be a slave owner. Our economy is like that as well. I read once in a textbook on economics a problem where the students were asked who valued the island of Manhattan more. Donald Trump, who would give billions of dollars for it, or a Native American who would give a dozen canoes of wampum for it. The answer was obvious. We were supposed to say Trump. But does Donald really value Manhattan more than a Native American? What about the use of the term value in this context? Money is the medium of exchange and substitution. But does money substitute for love? 
You see the problem. We are not in God's kingdom when we can put a price tag on everything. In the setup to the parable of the talents, the disciples had asked Jesus, what will be the sign of his coming? Jesus says some bad stuff is coming. But don't be distressed. Don't be confused. There will be wars and rumors of wars. He calls these things birth pangs. The end is not yet. Our parable is among the things Jesus says about his coming. For it will be as when a man going on a journey called his slaves and entrusted to them his property. So Jesus is giving the condition of the possibility of his return. The rich will get richer and the poor poorer. And some will even get cast out. But the end, the end is not yet. The parable of the sheep and the goats follows the parable of the talents. You will no doubt recall many of the details of that text. There, the criterion of the last judgment are given. One of those criteria is to visit those in prison. Could it be that if we visit those in prison, we would find there someone like the third slave in the parable of the talents? Someone who did not play according to the master's rules. In short, a resistor. The principle of the last judgment is treatment of those who experienced real deprivation in life. The thirsty, the hungry, the naked, and those in prison. Earlier, in Matthew 11, Jesus said this about John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. So life in the kingdom involves awareness of how the men of violence take it by force. That description fits the violence of the master in our parable. John the Baptist was someone who told truth to power, and he was executed. Jesus did not live past middle age either. The kingdom is not altogether safe. It involves risk. I also noticed on the net other diametrically opposed readings to the one I am giving here. One said, Jesus was a free marketeer, not an occupier. This interpreter noted that the master rewards the one who had made the most money by giving the third servants one talent to him. He also noted that the servant with the most money made the most money. He even noted that the one who made no money can go where the sun don't shine. He claimed that we should not tax the rich because they are the ones that make the wealth. According to this reading, the winners are determined by diligence and hard work and original capital investment. The losers are lazy and a threat to our economy. So our text is being read in other ways, even preached in other ways. If the gospel were just a matter of correct information, 
you would think that God could have spelled things out a lot more clearly. On the other hand, the Bible can be utterly clear. Here's a text I clearly understand. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No problem understanding that text. I think the New Testament is clear about how to treat outliers, the poor, the thirsty, the naked, and the prisoners. And it's clear about how we should treat our enemies. If we understand that God was thinking and affirming those outliers all along, then when we come to a text like the parable of the talents and see God behaving harshly with a slave, we might begin to question whether we identified God correctly in the parable. When Luke tells the parable of the talents, he frames it somewhat differently. The master is going away to receive a kingdom, and he gives his slaves different amounts of money. But the citizens of the master's country do not want him to be the ruler. So upon returning, the master has the folks who did not desire his rule executed. The text reads, But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Maybe you see in that framework, as I do, Luke telling us to think closely about who God is in the parable. How can God command us to love our enemies and then turn around and execute his enemies? God is not setting a good example. The parable in Luke 19 is in Luke 19, and you might want to take a look at it later. It, too, will mess with your mind. The parables are reading us, even as we read them. We don't just interpret them. They show us what we think and value. They interpret us, if we have ears to hear. You will recall the verse about how the word of God is alive. I am suggesting that part of the liveliness of scripture is its polyvalence that causes us to take the risk of interpretation. Our lives may confirm over time one reading or another. It is interesting to think of God as someone who respects our independence enough not to just hook up the heavenly modem to the earthly modem and download all the information about God in correct digital form. Again, if we have ears to hear, we can discern God's willingness to enter a process of discovery with us. It may be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom, as fat a chance as getting the camel through the needle's eye. But you will recall how that text ends. But with God, all things are possible. When God commits God's self to parabolic form, it, God is both risking and trusting our participation. It is clear that there is a huge unfairness in life. Despite our nation's wealth and ever-increasing GDP, our problems with domestic poverty seem worse. I never saw any homeless persons in Chicago when I was growing up, except in that district of the city where the alcoholics were concentrated. Now, of course, homeless persons are everywhere. I never saw a woman begging on the streets in those early days. Now I see both women and children begging. 
So despite our economic progress, it appears that the rich are getting richer and the poor, poorer. Jesus is telling us, I think, what the kingdom looks like now. To live in the kingdom involves risk. The poor are just like, the, like us in every respect save one. The poor are more vulnerable to death in all its many forms. The poor incarnate the truth of the gospel that living in the kingdom could kill you, even if you are doing the right thing. One need only to think of John the Baptist, or for that matter, Jesus himself, to realize that bucking the system is a dangerous game. On the other hand, Jesus trusted the God who notices falling sparrows. Take a careful inventory of your life, your spiritual journey. How much of it has been in your control? What has gotten you through along the way thus far? I'm betting it's not a list of rules that if rigidly followed would guarantee safety or a sense of your absolute autonomy and invulnerability. I'm betting that what has got you through so far is a graceful and mysterious presence who is asking you both to risk and trust. I am betting is it a sense that something is obviously wrong in our world, and yet simultaneously you can sense that this whole big ball of wax is loved. Jesus is not selling us a fantasy of fulfillment in the kingdom. He is describing a situation which underscores emptiness, yearning, and hope. God is bringing to life a desire within us. The more we love God, the more we are open to the beauty and joys of just plain being alive, and the more we are open to bearing the obvious pain and brokenness of our world. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for telling us such complex and confusing stories that force us to consider who you are and who we are, stories that help us live into your mystery. Put us in touch with the love that is around us. Help us to relax into love, to fall through our fears into love. Help us to see what the real dangers in your kingdom are, to see exactly where the violent folk are taking the kingdom by force. We pray that your will, which is done in heaven, will be more fully done on earth. We thank you for the witness of people who are taking risks because they trust love is always worth it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.